Okay, everyone, round the table. What is your favorite book of the Bible? Not everyone at once. Okay, so this is Dr. Edwards, and my current favorite book, because it's always switching, is the book of Jonah. Oh. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I like to fish, so that's kind of for me. <laughs> fish for whales? Fish for whales. Don't get caught by the you know wardens on that one. Oh, I know. You can't do that. Exactly. Not anymore. <laughs> in a past age the, in the old fished, days you could yeah. have fished for whales yeah, i'll go i'll go this is dr claire and for me it's the psalms uh the the big song book prayer book middle of the bible martin luther said it's like the bible in miniature so you kind of just need the book of psalms mm. gotta it's go awesome. with it dr Payne, favorite my book? favorite book hands down the hands book of down yes the book of revelation Ooh, i nice love one. the book of revelation really? i love the imagery i love um the just yeah, I love I, I love everything about it. I grew up reading about the city in Revelation, and I thought it was so beautiful. So, yep. I'm How gonna, about you? I'm gonna go with Book of Job. Oh, Old Testament, deep and dark and weird, but also bright and just amazing. Wow, students, welcome to the I Need to Know more podcast yes. our very first one of the semester we are so excited to have you with us and every week you will be watching an excellent lecture like you watched this first week by dr brian doke Aww. and then you will get to um learn more and go deeper in the i need to know more podcast yeah the idea is that obviously in these video lectures right we cannot accomplish even like a small percentage of what we would want to or need to because we're just like brimming with thoughts and ideas and mm -hmm. things we want to share with you and things we want to know too. So the I Need to Know More podcast is just a very literally named podcast. I, we need to know more. We want to just take a deeper dive into something. Our journey is not through with the I Need to Know More podcast, but at least it gives us another vista, another way to to talk with each other, to, to feature the lecturer, to ask her or him questions about that lecture and to get into it. And before we do that though, because this is our very first oh, yeah. one, oh, yeah. um, we have all of the teaching professors together all in our very first I Need to Know More podcast. And so we want to introduce ourselves to you so you can get to know us a little bit more mm -hmm. and then we will dive in. So how about Dr. Claire? Would you introduce yourself to us, Dr. Joseph Claire? Absolutely. What should I say? Uh, let's see here. <laughs> How Maybe about let's like, just take, take about 10 minutes of silence. <laughs> I know. It's just to like soak it in. Tell us who <laughs> you are, what you do here at George Fox, and maybe just some fun fact about yourself. Fun, funny yes. fact. <laughs> mm. Funny farm fact. Yeah, I'm Dr. Claire, um, heading into my eighth year at George Fox. I teach theology, but I teach ethics, uh, theological ethics, religious ethics. That's kind of... The, the question that I like to think about is how do we live in light of our Christian faith? What difference does it make for the way, way you live, where you shop, mm. what you do with your time and money and attention, all that stuff? So we'll talk more about that as the year progresses. Um, I grew up in Oregon, so I'm kind of back home. Love mm. George Fox, was on a long educational journey, finished at Princeton University 2013, and this is my first job out of grad school. Love it. Hope to be here eternally. Um, and the funny fun fact is the farm that I live on, which has about 18 chickens and uh, a bunch of goats, um, you know, dog, barn cats, wow. four feral children. So, <laughs> yeah. Welcome, Dr. Joseph. Welcome, Claire. Dr. Claire. <laughs> yes. 
How about you, Dr. Sarita Edwards? Welcome. Yes. Um, we were talking a little bit before we started filming because I only have five chickens and Dr. Claire has 18. <laughs> so there's a little busy. in-house competition here. Get there. You'll get there. I don't know. I don't know if I can handle more than it's five. the number of chickens. Yes. Nah, yeah, we get true. eggs. It's all good. Um, so my name is Dr. Sarita Edwards and I'm a professor of religion uh, here at George Fox. And so I've been here, this is the beginning of my 11th year. My area of specialty is primarily missiology and within that church history, the global church, and also a little bit of biblical theology of mission. And mm. so, yeah. What about like the word missiology? I can imagine that might, this might be the first time some people are hearing the word missiology. What, yeah, is that, what, what is does that, that mean? Yeah, it's, it's following both in scripture and in the contemporary church all the way through history, right? It's following the expansion of the church. And so sharing the gospel throughout time. And starting with God being the first missionary. Mm. The story is about God. Wow. All the time. Always. That's important. Wow. Dr. Payne, you should go next. Introduce yourself. Sure. To us. My name is Dr. Leah Payne. I am a historian, which means that I study um, the past. I spend all my time with dead people, most of my time with dead people, and I then I live with a few other ones. <laughs> um, I study the history of the development of Christianity, and I'm really interested in um, all the, the weird and wonderful ways that American Christians worship. And um, I am an Oregonian. I actually counted I am a fourth generation Oregonian. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I love it here. Mm -hmm. And I have uh, two kiddos and a husband and no chickens, but one very poorly behaved dog. How about you, <laughs> that's Dr. Gonna, Duck? That's going to be getting back to the Oregon Trail at some point. Yeah, actually, Did yeah, it doesn't go back that much further. Not that much. No, um, not that far, but yeah. Maybe I'm the just, fourth. I'm raising a fifth. Maybe you should just generation. say that it does. Yeah, it sounds kind of mysterious. <laughs> oh, well. Yes. How about you, oh, Dr. Uh, Brian Doak? My name is Brian Doak. Um, this is my 10th year teaching at George Fox University. Um, my academic field is, my PhD is in Near Eastern languages and civilizations, which is a fancy way of saying like what we now call the Middle East, like 4,000, 3,000 years ago, which is to say also one of the groups that produced the most literature and language that we have now from that time period is da -da, ancient Israel. In other words, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, which is the first roughly three fourths of the Christian Bible. So I'm a biblical scholar. That's my specialty, my academic discipline. And uh, yeah, that's 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 what I do. I think starting with a biblical scholar for this class was is a great place to start because this class is about the history um, of the relationship between God and the people of God. And we start actually, of course, I'm going to introduce it like that because I'm a historian. To me, it's about the history the of history, that. It's all um, about history. But we're talking about the Bible and Christian theology and Christian ethics and Christian missions. But we start with the Bible, like just this the Bible as a thing. Mm -hmm. Dr. Doak, you introduced us to a Bible, yeah. the Bible. We're going to do the Bible in the fall and church history in the spring. And so we thought we'd start just with this word Bible. Like what even is the physical text itself? Like what is the thing? Mm -hmm. What is it? Did any of us grow up with like a family Bible that used to be a thing where you have like people's but multi-generations? My, my family was not Christian that long, but. Dr. Claire, you were nodding. You, you did grow up did with a family one? Bible? We've still got it. It's grandma's Bible. It's like held wow. together by scotch tape and has these epic underlinings and like squiggles uh. and commentary in the side. Grandma's gone. So it's very sentimental, but it is this 
wacky transliteration of the Bible, and I won't name which one, only because oh, I can't remember. Nice. Uh, but it takes extraordinary liberties and sort of like, uh, we'll talk about this more, the difference between a translation and a transliteration. This is mm. this is kind of like an impressionistic take on the passages. Anyways, wow. it clearly nurtured and nourished my grandmother for many years. Aww. It's still at the center of my, my family house. Yeah. Wow. Dr. Edwards, did I you have didn't. a family Bible? No, no. I, I still have my my mum's Bible. We passed away a number of mm. years ago, and she has little notes and everything. Oh. And it was it was a translation. It wasn't transliteration, <laughs> uh, but yeah. But she used to just read it every day, so it's very special in our family mm. as well. But that's that question actually takes us to the heart right away of yes. just the thing Bible, like the actual physical materiality of it. Like I was thinking the other day about like. I could imagine students who are maybe even like handling a Bible for the first time or looking at them like in a bookstore, you see like some Bibles have like almost like a gold foil on the edges of the pages mm -hmm. and they often have these covers that are like, I'm just holding this Bible right very now at the fancy. table. Like, leather, very, like, leather, leather seems to be the thing. Leather or faux leather or, you know, and a lot of them are black and, the, and, it, and it's like this black leather cover or sometimes people even have cases and it highlights, I think, something that we want to say about the text, right? Like we want to say about the text that it's something totally different, that it's not just, even though the word Bible means book or books, mm -hmm. it's like more than a book. It's like a special kind of book. It's something. Well, the old timey reference for it would be the good book, right? Like it's somehow better than other books, I think. That's right. Or a lot of covers to a Bible will say holy Bible. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this idea of something having kind of a sacredness about it. So that's like when you walk into an old musty, you know, stone church, you get a sense of like, mm. this is a different kind of place. It doesn't feel like the Seven Eleven where I just got a Slurpee. This is a sacred place. And I think in the Bible's case, it's like, Sometimes we're trying to find physical ways to manifest that sacredness or the authority of the thing. Like mm. this is, this isn't just like a saying you read on a bubblegum wrapper. This is the saying of your wise grandmother who passed away. So when it's said, it has a kind of authority. So I think, right. how do you get the physical elements to represent that kind of seriousness that we, we have in regard to it, you know? Mm. Well, that's okay. So I was at our local grocery store, Fred Meyer the other day, <laughs> and I even took a picture of this. I can't show you the picture. Maybe I'll try to post it somewhere, but like I, I saw in the checkout aisle, they've got, you know how you go to a checkout aisle at a grocery store and they have all those magazines? Yes. And tucked in there, there was a kind of like a version of the Bible in magazine form, but not the whole Bible, just like some of like the greatest hits of the Bible. And this picture, it just gave me this, this cold, empty, lonely feeling because I saw the Bible, something which as a Christian is God's word, is holy, is inspired. Like Christians have so many different ways of like talking about this, right? And I'm like thinking, oh, the Bible contains the story of God's people and it, and it contains like, you know, it's as if like God wrote us a letter through these human authors. Like it should mean more than anything else. And then like seeing it alongside tabloids and in a magazine forum and alongside the Sunset Magazine all about Western living and cool Oregon chic restaurants. And it just like... It just weirded me out. And I know that there's this issue of access because you can access it because like, oh, there it was. You can even get it in a checkout aisle. That's amazing. And people are trying to market it in a way that so that it would be read. Yeah. But then again, I was like, oh, yeah. you know, and so I, I thought yeah, that was yeah. an environment like Dr. Claire, well, where it's like they're, they're not showing in that environment what we want to be. It wasn't being shown for what we believe that it is just physically, just before we even get to talking about all of its contents, yeah. just how you approach it physically. It was like you got to look out for like how it's. Yeah, how it comes to you, I guess. I don't well, know. and that kind of points to something that we haven't talked about yet today, that as the Christian church believes that it's the holy word of God and that it's in, written by human beings, but inspired by the spirit of God. Mm -hmm. And so that connects with not just the physical aspect of what it looks like, 
but the fact that when you read it, the Christian church believes that God can speak to you through it today. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's part of the heart of the mystery of the religion that we're a part of in Christianity is that God is totally other than us and mysterious and inaccessible and holy and back off and he's big and yet he's become totally accessible to us in Jesus and the person of of Jesus of Nazareth he's your friend he says uh, in the gospel of John and you know I've I when I was in grad school in the east coast I had a lot of Jewish friends in my religion program and it was cool to see the way that they were learning or training their kids to read the text like their kids had to learn Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, the stuff that Dr. Doak has bent his mind around for so long. That's how they did it. They had it in a scroll in their synagogue and their kids had to like get this other language that they were not familiar with. And the whole thing was set up to get a sense of the otherness that God has actually communicated to us as human beings. I think Christians, maybe we've lost some of that. Maybe we could use to recover some of it. And yet on the other hand, what I love about Christianity is it is a grocery aisle kind of religion. Like you can come to (laughs) Jesus however you are, whenever you are. He's made himself available. As, as uh, Dr. Doak was talking about finding the Bible in Fred Meyer, I was just thinking of growing up and we used to have this massive book, which was the Bible in cartoon form. Oh, yeah. It was oh, yeah. so uh-huh. good. And so I totally agree <laughs> that there is this sacredness that we're losing. But then I think about the transformation of my life and that cartoon, the, the comic strip, it was just, it was a wonderful way for me to access as a child the biblical narrative. I mean, already though, are we not talking about one of Christianity's greatest mysteries? Like something at de- so deeply at the heart, um, the incarnation, the idea that in Jesus Christ, God becomes is human, God and human. Like this, and is, Jesus being called the Word. Uh, yes, and that's this catchphrase, the Word, and Christians call the Bible the Word of God, right? Um, and so, you've got a lot of things going on here. We're into some deep waters. We really are. One of the things that you talked about in your lecture, Doctor Doak is the idea of canon and what, like how you get to the Bible. Right. Right. Because we're talking about something that we all kind of understand and we think of it as like one unified thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is that it is, it, it is a unified presentation of many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and that, that like the Bible as we have it now developed over time in fact not all christians still to this day agree on what the bible actually is right um did what did you what do you hope that students like what questions or like what kind of thoughts do you hope students are coming away with Mm. based on your discussion of like what the bible is right i mean the fact that we know that the bible circulated as scrolls or books or individual writings for a really long time before Really, anyone got their act together to even make a canon, first um, Jews for the Hebrew scriptures and then Christians later. I mean, uh, you know, I think I cited a, a date in the um, in the video lecture from, you know, that uh, of Athanasius's festal letter from the 360s AD, which is the first Christian reference we have. doesn't mean that there wasn't a collection before then. There clearly was. But just that it took that long. To me, I guess the faith takeaway is that um, God works through history. God works through a process like it's, it's not just like things floating down from the sky, as nice as that would be, and as much as God can definitely do that, you know. Um, but it's also a process that takes time. And it's, I think it's an emphasis on communities. Mm. Like I want, like when we think about canon, 
I don't know, like I want to look out at my church and I want students to look out at their church and think about the ways in which community shapes their faith. I think it probably is kind of a cliche to harp on this, but I think it's kind of true that probably in a lot of American churches, we really emphasize the individual thing. Like the individual makes her decision for Christ or I, you know, said a certain kind of prayer and, you know, and I think those things are really valuable by the way, but not at the expense of like this communal experience. And I think Canon is a topic that I can really lean into this communal idea because it's the work of a lot of different people over time. And when I see the work of a lot of people over time in a process, I'm like, Oh yeah, this being a person of faith and reading scripture, it's not about me alone. There's a famous kid song. I heard someone just singing it just not long ago. That person was me. I think that person was Dr. Payne. Yes. I heard her singing it. She was singing the B I B L E. Yes. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Yep, in preparation for this lecture, I heard students. that. So I, yeah. I heard this song when I was a kid. It's a, it's, it's a fun song. I would, I would love for my kids to sing it. Okay, it's not about trashing the song. But just like think about those words. The B-I-B-L-E is the book for me. Like it's about me, me in the Bible, just me. And I stand alone on the word of God. It's a kind of, a, it almost seems like a Lutheran reference to Martin Luther. Had a famous comment about, you know. Anyway, the idea is, no, I don't, I don't, I don't really see myself that way theologically. Like I don't stand alone on the word of God. Like I'm standing in this huge stream of tradition with other believers. Like I think that's, I don't know. Does that make sense? Do you think that that's a spiritual and spiritually enlivening takeaway? Or does that sound like it's too much of an emphasis on, you know, the community and, and it's not specific enough? Well, I think one like little history thing to back you up, um, uh, back that little critique up is the idea that I think the 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 song B I B L E. I grew up singing that in oh no I did too. In, in Sunday school, um back when there was a thing called Sunday school, but um I grew up singing that um but it it uh, gives it can give you the impression that the I like interacting with the Bible has always been done primarily through reading and through reading like to yourself silently, right. which that is actually a pretty recent development because for most of like our history, the history of, of the Christian church, most people just couldn't read first off. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and then when, if, if they did, they would read out loud. And so the experience of the Bible for most people, for the vast majority of time was as a group. So mm -hmm. experiencing the scripture alone is such a recent development. And so I think we should almost always think of ourselves as interacting with the Bible. Like we're never alone when mm -hmm. we we're, we're not alone. Cause we're joined by the, the, people in the Bible, but we're also like joined by this long history of the church. Soapbox done. <laughs> no, I think, I think that I love that idea. I think we need to get over our kind of individualist um, approach to Christianity in general and to the Bible. I think the term canon comes from the Greek um, term, basically canon, which would have been like a measuring stick. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of like a cane, literally, if you've seen bamboo cane or whatever, it's like these very predictable like segments that you'd measure something with. So the idea is in a sense that these are the books that the people of God have, have said, we are measured by these books. So to call something canonical or canon is to think of yourself as under the measurement of. Um, mm -hmm. It's a rule to live by. And it's something, if there's a meaning to the Bible at all, it's a meaning to be lived out. And it's a meaning that cannot be lived out in isolation, um, ultimately. That kind of brings a thought to my mind, because I grew up in the Protestant church. And when I was growing up, in my community, there was a lot of question marks about whether Roman Catholics were Christian. My my whole family on one side are Roman Catholic. And 
looking at the canons, and this is a question for Dr. Doak, looking at the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox canons versus the Protestant canon, mm. there in the Protestant canon, there are several books missing. And so now my understanding, I have a much broader understanding of the global body of Christ, that right. there are three major branches. So what do I do as a Protestant, all of a sudden comparing my Bible with my Catholic friend's Bible mm -hmm. when they have Tobit and Judith and all these books that I don't have in my Bible, <laughs> are they inspired by God? Right. Should I be reading those? Right. So in the class Bible that we're using, this Life with God study Bible, if you look at the table of contents, you'll see, in fact, they this Bible actually contains these books. Sometimes they're called Apocrypha, a word that means hidden. Sometimes they're called Deuterocanonical. That means secondary canon. Um, and I'm just reading these books right now from the table of contents. Additions to Esther. So there's a different version of Esther, which is, is in the Protestant canon as well. First Esdras, second Esdras, Judas, one, two, three, and four Maccabees. Psalm 151. So there's an additional psalm. Wisdom of Solomon, Wisdom of Jesus, Son of Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, Letter of Jeremiah, Prayer of Manasseh, Tobit, Additions to Daniel, right? And, and, so, and there are even other books besides this that different um, Orthodox Christian groups actually use in their canon, and of course, um, Catholics do as well. Um, let's focus. Okay, so here's the thing. So basically, Christians agree on the contents of what we call the New Testament, like those books, I think it's 27 books or 20, some number like that. Like those, the Gospels, like Christians agree on the New Testament. Now. Now. Uh, not always. Of course, there was a period, yes, of, of there was a period of, of, of decision and of, and of debate about this. But we came out with a list and Christians, like Catholics and Protestants aren't divided about the Gospels, for example, just to be clear about that. Um, Jews, ancient Israelites, who wrote what we now call the Old Testament, didn't even consider just what we consider now the Old Testament as the full totality of their sacred writings, but rather the Old Testament was not in isolation from other traditional sources like the Mishnah. So even, even right there at this initial point, like Jews had books that we consider now to be part of the Old Testament, but also other books that Christians then didn't follow as part of their canon. So you already see this division early on. Here's a little more detail on this that I think is interesting. So Jerome, who was an early church leader in the 4th and 5th century AD, he left out some books okay, in his, in his Latin version of the Bible that he made that he called the Apocrypha. I think he's the one who even invented that term, Apocrypha, which means hidden. It's not clear, though, why he left them out or really put them in a separate section. And it's not clear what he meant by the term Apocrypha. He might have meant it even in a positive or a neutral sense, although it almost sounds like a negative term, which is why some people prefer the term deuterocanonical. However, by the time you get to Martin Luther, the kind of... Um, the church leader who kicks off what we call the Protestant Reformation. So if you're part of a church that's like, I don't know, like Presbyterian or Baptist or Assemblies of God, as, as, as much as those traditions are different, you are all Protestants being in this long, or Lutherans, for example, you are Protestants in this long history that comes after Martin Luther that broke away from the Catholic Church. One of Luther's beefs with the church was actually about the canon. So he actually had a thing, those books I was listing, he thought those books belonged in a separate category. Famously, he actually thought they were valuable for reading. He thought that they told us important things about faith. He just didn't think that they rose to the level of the other books. And he had reasons for that, and we could drill down. And there were book. also other books in the New Testament that he didn't like either. He was an ordinary guy. He, was he an picked a guy. lot of arguments. Well, he had, he had what probably a lot of us have, right, which is to say a canon within the canon, which is like a set of books that are like really important to you or that you think 
in Luther's phrase, testified to Jesus Christ in a clearer way than others. Mm-hmm. And so he had some, yeah, he had ordinary opin- opinions about this. He did not actually take a scissors and cut books out of the Bible, though. Like, that's not a thing. In fact, a lot of Bibles, even Protestant Bibles, didn't actually remove these books. Fun fact, the King James Bible, which is a very famous translation from 1611, still had the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books mm-hmm. in it well into the 19th century yeah. in all of its mainstream versions. And so those were taken out later. Um, so it's a process and Protestant churches genu- generally followed Luther in that reform. But I think it would be inaccurate to say, oh, Protestants just like went berserk and cut them out or like burned those sections of the Bible. It wasn't right. quite like that. I think that's a more modern evangelical Christian approach, which stems from a kind of, um, I think that's a more modern American evangelical Christian approach that stems from maybe a kind of anti-Catholicism potentially, which is um, uh, not helpful in some ways, because I think what, what Dr. Doak is saying is that Protestants have always kept these books around. So I'm part of a a Protestant uh, movement called Anglicanism or the Church of England, but it's all over the world now. It's Anglicanism. They also keep those books at the center of the Bible. And they have, we have this thing called the Catechism where you ask all these questions and get answers. And one of the questions is, what the heck are these apocryphal <laughs> books doing? And the answer is Luther's answer, which is they're not on the same level as the Old and New Testament, but they're very helpful for understanding the history between the end of the, what we call the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. They're also helpful for morals, for examples of how to live Mm. and they say i think luther says this explicitly and anglicans do they say that's how the early church thought of these books so we're actually going back to the earliest christian understanding of the apocrypha well and i use jerome as an example i mean jerome might have been somebody who had an understanding like this the earliest christian bibles we have though um um the the so-called codex vaticanus and sinaiticus these greek bibles from the 400s ad they all contained these books and some of them actually contained other writings that never made anyone's uh, canon at all too so it it really is a it's a topic for which i as a christian and all of us and students we're just going to have to live with like a little bit of ambiguity on this you know right, you know, right? one fun thing that the students have to look forward to is next semester they'll be reading a couple of excerpts from books that almost made the cut, some other ancient writings um, in different parts, like different Christians in different parts of the world, even from the very beginning had stories and writings that they thought were really precious to them. So little advertisement for the next semester when we start talking about church history. But one thing that you brought up, Dr. Doak, that I think um, the students listening might like to hear about is you brought up the King James version. Oh, yeah. Students, you will notice that you are not using the King James version. Um, the King James version is one of, it's probably the most famous English version, oh, totally. English translation yeah. of uh, the Bible and, and certainly one of the most enduring, but we are using a different translation and students might have questions. Why are we using the NRS V, the new revised standard New revised version standard version. I know. Of the Bible. There are so many different versions to choose from i mean i know one one reason why is because this um is what's it called i forget the it's called it's called the life with god study Bible. yes edited by a very famous alum of george fox university richard foster richard foster who is from the friends uh evangelical quaker tradition so that's one reason yeah but a nod to our tradition yeah so a nod to the quakers but um i'd love for the students to hear Maybe from our resident Bible guy. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Why we're choosing this this translation, and and if there's any particular value, and what if they grew up with a different one, like you know, yeah. what if they just love reading the NIV or yeah. 
the message or yep. some other version. Is there anything wrong with that? Love the message. Love the NIV. I love the King James Bible. Actually, my, I do too, my, actually. Per, my confession, my personal Bible that I have that I read that I keep with me is a King James, an old King ah, James Bible. It's quite beautiful. Actually, though, funny enough, it's not even the old, old King James, though. It's actually a revision. What we call the King James Bible today, what people like students, if in any of your families, you have a King James Bible. I bet you, I, I bet you, not not any amount of money, just like $100 of Monopoly money that the <laughs> old King James Bible you have is actually not the old King James Bible. It's mm. rather an, a spelling update. Um, the, the real old King James Bible is re- super disorienting, like as much as reading Shakespeare or even Chaucer mm. is today. Um, so it's really, it's really tough. Um, but what you have is a spelling update. So, um, you know, 1611, um, the King James Bible there, um, was obviously produced in an era when the English language was really different, right? And so it, I actually read it because it's a stumbling block to reading for me. Hmm. And I'm so used to reading the Bible that I need something that's going to stop me up. Oh, you so. read the yeah. original? Yeah. No, no, not the original. No, oh, okay. No. The okay, okay, okay. Even the, the updated. Up, I think even the update, though, is, is actually kind of hard to read for a modern... Nerd but alert. This, but this word, brings right? up the question uh, that I've always wondered about is... So the Bible wasn't written in English originally, right? You talk about that in your right, lecture. Right. Super helpful. Got to realize you've Hebrew, got Hebrew, Aramaic, Aramaic, and then Greek New Testament. Um, so we don't have those exact copies in the original languages. Like you can't go back and find the one that oh, yeah. the Psalm that King David wrote in Hebrew or whatever, right? So. Are there lots of different uh-huh. versions? Was that really old, like hardcore King James using different original oh, Hebrew Greek manuscripts yes. than like the NRSV that we're using for his class? Like what, yep. do, what do we have in terms of the original stuff? How far back does it go? Oh, totally. So probably everyone has at least in popular culture heard the phrase the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anyone? Anyone? Dead Sea Scrolls? Lots you're of You're such nods. a Bible nerd. Okay. You're okay. De- <laughs> the Dead Sea Scrolls. Qumran. Qumran from Qumran. Qumran is location in That's Israel great. along the Dead Sea. Um, but there were a number of locations where um, starting in the 1940s and really onward throughout the 1950s, even on to today, um, archaeologists have discovered various kinds of of scrolls. And it turns out that those scrolls are the oldest versions of the Bible that we had. However, those were discovered in the 1940s. They were so shocking and so stunning, however, because prior to that time, prior to the 1940s, the oldest version of the Hebrew, let's just take the Old Testament. The oldest version of the Hebrew Bible that we had was from the year 1000 A.D., AD. Hmm. So it was a medieval manuscript. Do you know what I think? So it took us back like over a, so the Dead Sea Scrolls are from about like a hundred BC, let's say just before the time of Jesus. So those, Mm. those scrolls actually took us back in what they represented over a thousand years, obviously in 1611, that's 400 years before 1940s. And so the King James Bible didn't, they didn't have available to them all of the manuscript discoveries that have occurred in a 400 year period since the 1600s. So that's one reason why, you know, it's the King James version is never going to be like the best scholarly Bible. It's not going to it's not going to be the best translation in terms of looking at what those texts were. Do you know what I think is extraordinary, though, is knowing that the King James version was created with much younger versions of the Bible. Right. What's extraordinary is how similar the NRSV and the King James oh, version yeah. actually are. Oh, and totally. it's a testimony to how seriously Christians mm. took the, oh, totally. the act of preserving the scriptures because mm-hmm. it's actually not that I mean yep. maybe I'm sure like specialists could go through and pick 
you know, many things apart, but it's actually pretty Mm -hmm. similar. No, no, it's pretty good. And that's Mm -hmm. the thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls is when they were discovered, there's a moment of panic. Like we just went a thousand years back in the tradition. What Mm -hmm. if the text, like, for instance, take the book of Isaiah, which is the most serious scroll that people found, the great Isaiah scroll. You can look it up online. You can Google it. You can see pictures of it. It's gorgeous. Mm. Was that great Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls going to be really different from the Bibles that we had from the year 1000 AD? It's a thousand year difference. Turned out it really wasn't that different. Like there was no like radical change. Yes, there were tons of tons of issues, spelling issues, words, this, that, the other thing. Um, So that's cool. Why are we using the NRSV? The NRSV is just a good contemporary translation. The NIV is good too. A Bible like the message actually, which is really popular, is great. It's maybe something more like Dr. Claire was talking about with the the grandma's Bible. Kind of devotional. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it takes the language and it tries to render it by ideas and concepts that are similar Mm -hmm. without actually just translating word for word. We might call a word for word translation a quote literal translation. I don't like the phrase literal translation because it just kind of doesn't make sense to me. Like all translations are an act of interpretation yep. and all translations are non-literal just by the meaning of the word literal. Like you, if you were to do a literal translation, you'd just be copying the words from the one, from the language mm-hmm. into the same language. Like that's not what translation is. So I think the NRSV is a great Christian option for a Bible. It's not perfect. Absolutely not. The NIV is a great Christian option for a Bible. It is not a perfect Bible by any means. And the NIV has gone through like 15 revisions through the last 30 years. Some of them controversial and fascinating for their own reasons that we don't even have time to talk about. But there's just, when you get into translations, I'm just somebody though, for like reasons of just faith, I'm not even talking about being a scholar right now. I'm just talking about like human faith. Like, you know, there are a lot, you know, scholars have worked really hard, translators, you know, just like, don't get into translation wars with the Bible, like reading the Bible. Like we can get over this, mm-hmm. you know, like the NIV is really good. The NRSV is good. The King James is really good. Like we can debate about things around the edges, like wonky stuff. But like, I don't think Christians should ever let something like that come between like them and an experience with other Christians or the text. That's just my view on that. Yeah. I have a, I have a question for everyone here, which is, so you, you've, we've talked a little bit about the, like the nuts and bolts of like doing biblical interpretation and some of the challenges that come up with that. And one of the questions that I think a lot of students will face this semester is, wow, I, the Bible is a lot bigger and maybe it's a lot different than I thought it would be. Even for some students who grew up oh, yeah. in like in, in a traditional church setting, and it might feel a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. Now, I know all of us represent different disciplines, but we are still in the general Christianish Bibleish world. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear everyone reflect on how do you like knowing that the Bible can say some things that you that some some students might not be expecting, knowing that there's it can cause a little bit of discomfort. How do you still enjoy and appreciate the Bible, even with all the technical knowledge and and all of the like intellectual and spiritual and emotional wrestling that you do with the Bible. Dr. Edwards, you should go for that one. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of the things that we, as professors, that we have to think about a lot because we teach this. And when we're not teaching it on Sundays, sometimes we're preaching it. And so it's really easy to just look at the Bible in a very academic light with all our resources around us and looking at the original language and, and so I think when you asked that question, Dr. Payne, I was thinking about, well, how does it feed my soul as a, as a follower of Christ? And so what I have to do just very practically is for class, I study and I, I talk about things. But then on a personal level, 
I also read it devotionally and then that might be a term people are really familiar with and others aren't but it just simply means that I as a human being am, am reading different passages really prayerfully and, and praying that the Holy Spirit will give me insights that I haven't seen and so I kind of it's it's a juggle between those two worlds for me mm-hmm. no that's I love that that's um, that's super helpful I've been I've been wrestling more and more with how to read the Bible as pointing to Jesus, like mm-hmm. the whole, the summation of scripture. So one of the things we'll talk about later in the the semester is we are people of the book. So we take words really seriously. God has revealed himself through words. And what are words? Words are really weird things. Like, look, if you have a Bible with you now, like look down at the page, you'll see a word. What is a word? It's letters clumped together. And I'm looking at horse right now. H-O-R-S-E. There it is. It's a word. It's, it's not anything unless you can imagine what it's pointing to. What's H-O-R-S-E pointing to? Some vision of, you know, this stallion in your mind or whatever. That's what words do. They point to things. So I think in a fascinating way, if you take the Bible seriously as words and you take Jesus seriously as the word, the word of God that John 1, 1 talks about, how are all the different little words as like signs, symbols pointing to the word? Now, that's not a perfect cure-all. It doesn't get you out of every pickly, prickly passage that Dr. Payne is pointing to. But it does start to make some more coherent sense that when we think of the Bible's message as a whole, it's ultimately trying to point us back to this 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 person, Jesus of mm-hmm. Nazareth. What about you, Dr. Doak? Wow. I was, I'm impressed that that's straight out of Augustine right there. Dr. <laughs> Claire is a scholar. Uh, of Augustine. You're going to learn that. I forgot that. to mention. Sorry. That's you're going to learn that, idea. student. Yeah. No, that was amazing. I'm really happy about that. Augustine's book on Christian teaching, by the way, is a book I use with upper level students for them to think about what the Bible is precisely because of things like that mm. that Augustine says. So that was worth it. What um, about you? What? Oh, about me. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's maybe similar in some ways to what Dr. Edwards was saying and Dr. Claire as well, just like. You know, like I, just taking time in my life to separate things. I think I've tended in some ways, one way that's been helpful for me throughout my Christian journey to engage with the Bible has almost been kind of mystically in a way, like just to like take something in a moment of desperation or need and just see myself in the text, you know, mm. like this last week in church, um, the passage that was being preached on was about um, Elijah at this mountain. And I just felt like um, the text just like spoke to me like I was living in it, you know, cause like God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? Which is such a human question, right? Like, and I was like living it. I was like, I felt God like asking me. And so I think my engagement with the text, yeah, it's like now is a moment like that, like studying the language and doing all the fancy work that we all did to get our PhDs and blah, blah, blah. No, that's accessible to anyone at any time. So I think I have to work just as a biblical scholar at just like letting go and not being so arrogant that I can't just like experience that that word in preaching or in reading or whatever mm. in that way That's and great. i have to try to find times and places where i can like be vulnerable and be myself and not feel like i have to defend the fact that i'm smart or something like that which is hard to come by the older you get and you know you feel responsible for things and but which is like the opposite of being vulnerable sometimes it feels like so i gotta search that out in my life what mm-hmm. about you dr Payne? how would you answer that question for yourself Wow. I I feel like there's so much rich stuff that I'm just like thinking about after all y'all. Um, I, I, I think about my grandma, Barb. She was not my biological grandmother, but she was this grandmother in the faith. Um, she had a little necklace and, um, it, the necklace had, it was like a, a glass sphere and it had this tiny little thing in it and it was a mustard seed. 
And it was a reference to this famous biblical passage that we'll we'll get to at some point in the in the course where it talks about having like faith as small as a mustard seed and how God can do extraordinary things through that. And I was just thinking about my own like when you do something for your job, it can it can you can be tempted to like not have as much joy in it when you're doing it, you know, like in your recreational time. And I think like for me developing that kind of um, like that little tiny bit of faith, I think for me has happened recently with my, my oldest child who's four and he does not under, he does like, I read the Bible to him and it's the very first time he's heard it. Right. You know, like, and re- experiencing the Bible through the eyes of a child has been like the most profound mm. and enjoyable thing because he picks up on really cool stuff. Like I, I think I was talking with you, Dr. Doak, about this where my son just was like, does God have a sword? And then I was thinking about God in Revelation. I was like, yeah, God has a sword. You know, I mean, just just stuff like that, that there's just a lot of joy there. So I hope that you students are able, you're going to be learning a lot of facts um, but we hope that you are also able to enjoy the the Bible and just learning about it in not just in an intellectual way. Students, you've hung with us here for 40 minutes. This is longer than we'll usually make these podcasts, but we wanted to all be here for this first one and introduce ourselves. So we went a little bit long. You'll just have to deal with it. I think the content was really rich. <laughs> Dr. Claire, thanks for joining us today. Yes. So good to Dr. be here. Dr. Edwards. Thanks yes. for being on this journey with us. Absolutely. Dr. Payne and I are here for you um, in this experience. and We'll be doing these podcasts throughout the semester and we'll be inviting our teaching professors back in yes. from time to time as they lecture, which they will. <laughs> I'm so excited. Mm-hmm.